Kevin Shaw, and instead of relitigating blowout losses to the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat, we're going to look at how those two Eastern Conference contenders built themselves up to the point where they could be considered two of the best teams in the NBA, and how the Knicks can potentially replicate it. All that and more next on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Knicks is rebound, back up off the glass, it's good! What he does is he contagious. Oh, Robinson with a catch and slam. Across the lane. Knocks foul from behind. Count it and one. As Fist in the post is Fist. Becomes infectious. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Shaw. You can follow me on Twitter at Gavin Shaw. And I'm going solo today. Alex has the day off. Uh, I took the weekend off uh, to enjoy the holidays a little bit and to watch approximately 18 to 19 episodes of The Office. I don't know how many I went through, but I I went through a lot. Um, Now I'm back, and I watched, I sat through the Heat game, I sat through parts of the Bucks game, but instead of uh, just going through two blowouts. I mean, I, I didn't think there was a whole lot to take away other than a, an excellent quote from uh, Jonathan Macri of Knicks Film School that basically sums up where the team is. Uh, quote, they are the team most of us thought we were getting before this season started. Good against terrible teams, bad against good teams, and more or less competitive against mediocre teams. Their net rating stands at a minus 4.9 under Miller, good for 20th in the NBA over the last eight games. Uh, that, that That's really the summation of my thoughts on those two games as well. This is where the Knicks are at. I, I said it on the uh, crossover pod with Jay Ellis. You're not going to beat the Heat. You're not going to beat the Bucks. Maybe if they have an off night and someone on the Knicks, like Marcus Morris, hits like 10 threes or something, goes out of their mind. But on average, when you play those teams, these are going to be the results. But unlike under Fizdale, the Knicks didn't totally fall apart. They didn't lose either game by 40. Uh, they were down by 20 in the first quarter of each of these two games, or, or pretty darn close to 20 if it wasn't 20. And, and they fought their way back, and they made it somewhat competitive and essentially played these two teams even after getting bum-rushed early. And, and that should be the expectation going forward. These were solid performances from the Knicks. They weren't spectacular. They weren't awful, like some people would tell you. They're better with Miller than they were under Fizdale. I just don't know how much nuance there is to explore there, which is why I want to take this podcast in a different direction and instead sort of go through how those two teams were built. And in doing so, maybe create a bit of a roadmap for how the Knicks could potentially build themselves up to get to the same level. So let's start off with the Miami Heat, a team that looked like they were essentially lost in a lot of ways in the final years of Dwayne Wade's career. They were competitive but they made the classic mistake that we've seen so many franchises make over the years, and that's investing in a team whose ceiling is solidly capped. And they gave big contracts to guys like Kelly Olynyk, James Johnson, Dion Waiters, uh, extended Hassan Whiteside. And ultimately, those are guys who can have flash performances. Like, they gave Olynyk a big contract after he went off against the Celtics in the playoffs for two games. But the mistake franchises make, you saw the Knicks do it in an even more extreme negative way with Jerome James back in the mid-2000s, is mistaking these one-offers as 
something that's sustainable for a player and mistaking their ceiling as their floor and in doing so investing in a guy who ultimately isn't going to make the difference between you winning and losing a championship. And in that sense, on paper over the last couple of years, outside of the fact that they were in Miami and they had this outstanding infrastructure uh, between Pat Riley and Eric Spolster and this culture of winning, it looked like just in terms of their cap situation, they were in one of the worst situations in the NBA because they were locked into all these dudes who they weren't going to win a championship with, and it limited their potential in pursuing a star. That's why you saw them, instead of trying to string together a Heatles-like experience and find the next LeBron, Wade, Bosch, they would go after Gordon Hayward, or this summer they'd go after Jimmy Butler. So why is it all working now? Why is Miami one of the best teams in the NBA? And anyone who watched them in the Knicks game, anyone who's watched them throughout the season, knows, despite their relative lack of star power, they are one of the five or six best teams in the NBA last year. And it goes back to that infrastructure that I just mentioned. The fact that Riley's been there for almost two decades now. That Spolstra has been there for the better part of two decades now. And those two are the best in what they do. Riley, at this point, I'm not sure how much of an influence he still has in terms of the day-to-day logistical decisions on the basketball side, but he is sort of the ultimate winner left in the NBA with Phil Jackson gone, alongside Greg Popovich. He's the guy who says, look, I've done this. I've done this over the course of 40 years, even 50 years. He was on he was on those 70s Lakers teams that were winning titles. I know how to win. I can show you all the rings. I can dump the rings at your feet. I've done this. I've done this with a million different guys. Let me bring you to championship glory. And then you have a guy in, in Spolstra who, at least amongst the casual fans, isn't always mentioned in the conversation for best coach in the NBA but certainly belongs there. He is as good as just about anyone in the league at maximizing his talent. And those two have combined to build a culture of high-level accountability, which I know sounds like a cliche, but stick with me, and just an extreme level of fitness. Miami emphasizes physical fitness in a way no other team in the league has, perhaps in the history of the sport. They have prerequisites for their players that I, I don't think the majority of guys on the Knicks would be able to pass in terms of what levels they have to be at, in terms of speed, in terms of endurance, in terms of strength. And it gives them this consistent competitive edge that makes a difference and allows them to play over their heads. And even when they were just weighed at a bunch of rope guys, allowed them to have some truly competitive playoff series against teams that had a heck of a lot more talent. And you look at that infrastructure, you look at what it's what it's led to. They won three championships. They've made five finals over the last 16 years or so, and they did it with two different groups. Obviously, Dwayne Wade was the common denominator there, but that, the fact that they could build that team up twice and now look like they have built it up a third time into being a championship contender again is just a testament to how good Spolstra and Riley have been over a long period of time. And, and really, you give credit to the entirety of that front office. And, and the way they were over, able to overcome their mistakes, like signing guys like Waiters and James Johnson and Whiteside and Olenek to big contracts, is by striking gold in other spots. Someone like Justice Winslow, who took with the eighth pick in the draft, and looked like he was a total mistake given the fact that uh, I think it was Boston was offering four first-round picks to trade up and get him. And Miami refused. Winslow never became the superstar that would be worthy of turning down four first-round picks. 
he has become a high-level role player, and he largely hasn't even been healthy this year. But when he gets fully healthy, just another weapon this team will have in its arsenal. Josh Richardson, a second-round pick back in 2016, if memory serves, maybe 2015. i got to double-check that. Um, and he developed into an elite two-way wing player. That got him a contract and, and, and gave him enough value that Philadelphia was willing to accommodate Jimmy Butler in his decision to go to Miami by saying, hey, we'll get back a primetime asset in Richardson. So Josh isn't necessarily a guy who directly is helping them right now, but a great find and one that ultimately uh, lubricated the Jimmy Butler trade. The ultimate find for them was Bam Adebayo, who was the 14th pick back in the 2017 draft. That guy is an all-star caliber player at this point, a genuine game changer on both ends. And the way they've maximized him is by essentially putting him into the best possible situation for him to succeed, allowing him to still be involved in the offense despite having a ball-dominant guy in Jimmy Butler in a really significant way. And they really unlocked his potential as a passer that wasn't apparent at all when he was at Kentucky. And they they did that by placing him in the high post and just letting him leverage his athleticism, his relative shooting ability, into becoming a really good sort of point forward for them. And that wasn't something that anyone expected out of, out of bio coming out of school, but it was a great evaluation by Miami. And, and the fact that his energy and his athleticism also translated in addition to that untapped skill potential that they knew that he had. And, and it, it's turned him to, I mean, I, I think one of the 10 best players in the Eastern Conference, a guy who's a lot to be an all-star this year, and, and someone who I think can really make a difference in the postseason, just as impactful as a, of a two-way player as you get for someone who universally isn't considered a star. Someone like Duncan Robinson was undrafted three seasons ago out of Miami. I mean, out of Michigan. He started off his college career playing Division Three. was probably the fourth or fifth best player on Michigan when they made the NCAA championship game two years ago. So I guess it was two years ago he was drafted. And then he didn't get picked. But the reason his agent steered him towards Miami was because they had this reputation, one, of winning, two, playing for a great coach in Spolstra, and three, the kind of developmental track record over the years that his agent knew that Robinson would turn into the best version of himself being there, and for that reason, sort of guided him to Miami when a lot of different teams were interested in him. And I remember seeing him playing for Miami in the G League and thinking, oh, I love that guy. I love his story. There's no way he's ever an NBA rotation player. Now, one of the 10 best three-point shooters in all of basketball. And fresh off, tearing up the Knicks. He had six triples against New York. Kendrick Nunn, another just ridiculous find. From the Santa Cruz Warriors, played his college ball at Oakland after getting kicked off Illinois' team. And was solid last year in the G League, not overwhelmingly good. Miami saw something in him. He drops 40 points in a preseason game as one of the better stories of the early season. Looked like he was falling off. Miami had faith. They stuck with him, kept him in the rotation, continued to pump him full of confidence. And he's just such a clean fit in that starting lineup. And the beauty of him is he's sort of a score-first guy, and we're going to get to this a little bit later, but in the same mold of an Alonzo Trier. And yet he fits just fine in Miami, because they have so much passing and shooting around him that it allows him to maximize the strengths of his game 
And, and I'm always a big advocate that passing begets passing. He's averaging three or four assists per game, despite nominally being a shoot-first-and-shoot-only type of dude. And that's, I mean, for one, made him a better player, but two, allowed him to be a real asset to this Heat team. The final guy is Tyler Hero, who's very similar story to Bam Adebayo. It was part of that just basketball machine that they have going on in Lexington. And Eric Spolstra saw an undervalued asset in, in sort of like a guard version of Bam or, or a Devin Booker type if you want to go back a couple of years on a different team in Phoenix. But he just wasn't getting maximized because Kentucky had eight guys who all saw themselves as NBA players who all wanted shots, who all demanded shots. And John Calipari's whole thing is, look, I'm going to maximize you. I'm going to give you a chance to succeed. But in doing so, sometimes his most talented guys don't get a chance to show how good they are at the college level. And you give the Heat's scouting department all the credit in the world for saying, hey, Hero is better than what he showed in college. And that immediately has paid dividends with him clearly being one of the four or five best rookies in the league. I mean, honestly, it's, it's hard to gauge whether him or R.J. Barrett has been better this season. It maybe give a slight edge to Barrett because of the all-around game, but Hero's such a perfect fit on that team and someone who looks ready as a 20-year-old or 19-year-old to play significant playoff minutes. And none of those moves matter in the grand scheme of things because you don't have a Jimmy Butler then this is just sort of a fun team with a lot of good stories on it that ultimately is, is probably losing just as much as they're winning. But the fact that Miami had all that sort of, I'm trying to think of the right word, really it's, it's infrastructure, I know I'm overusing it, but that, that's probably the only way to sum it up, in place for Butler. And it was sort of the ideal ecosystem for a ball-dominant guy like Butler who isn't the best shooter in the world and is a good creator but not an elite creator to come into and really make an impact. And to that point, I mean, look at what they did against the Knicks. Butler had six assists in the first quarter. The Heat collectively assisted on their first 20 shots. And it's this beautiful system cultivated and created by Spolstra with all the right guys in to run it. And it's allowing Butler to be the best possible version of himself and in turn leverage all those other guys. That's the brilliance of having a star is that it makes these role players and the Duncan Robinsons of the world fit in properly in the pecking order and play their game without having to overextend themselves. And it's really, it's this beautiful thing. And it's allowed Miami to be one of the best stories in the NBA this year. So now we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the Bucks. And we are going to take our first break of the show. We wanted to remind you today's show is presented by Casper and the original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash LOCKEDNBA and using our code in all caps, LOCKEDNBA at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. If you can't visit Casper right now, you can find this and all other offers from Locked On Sponsors at LockedOnPodcast.com slash offers. Welcome back in to Locked On Knicks. We are going to break down the Milwaukee Bucks now, how they became one of the best teams in the NBA. And this isn't going to be quite as long as we spent on the Miami Heat because Milwaukee is a little bit less replicable, I will say, in terms of how they built themselves into a great team because it took, it took two flukes. They got the best player in the NBA, I'm willing to call at least in terms of the regular season version of that award, 
Um, I think I think it's pretty clearly Giannis in terms of his two-way impact. The guy is averaging a point a minute while being arguably the best defensive player in all of basketball. And they got him with the 15th pick in the draft because he was just this unknown, super raw dude out of Greece. And Milwaukee will tell you, John Hammond, who is their GM at the time, will tell you, they had no idea he was going to become this guy. It's one of the all-time luckiest picks in the draft. That being said, you give them credit for taking a risk. A lot of teams take risks on guys every year. 99.999% of the time, they don't end up being Giannis. 95% of the time, they don't end up being an all-star. Probably 70% of the time, they don't end up being a long-term starter. But clearly, the Bucks saw something in him that 14 other teams didn't. They shot their shot, and they hit the lottery. They did so again in terms of acquiring Chris Middleton, who was really just to throw in to the Brandon Knight trade, but here's where that matters. It's the ability to recognize what you have. I, I flash back to Jeremy Lin somehow almost seven years ago now. <clears throat> Look, he was on the Warriors bench for months, and they didn't realize what he could be. If it weren't for an injury, I don't know if the Knicks ever would have realized what he could be. Middleton's an even better story than Lin in a sense because he's – proven to be a more sustainable commodity, despite being someone that almost no one in the league wanted. I mean, to me, he's almost Jimmy butler light in the way he worked himself from an end-of-the-bench guy to one of the more complete role players in the NBA, and I call him that because I, I honestly think he's, he's, in terms of pure talent, he's underqualified to be a second banana, at least on a title-contending team. But you have a group with Giannis, and a coach in Mike Budenholzer that's just brilliant, and you're able to make it work. And, and that's kind of where I want to jump to next, because the ultimate ingredient for a great team is a great coach. This team had similar talent in terms of having Giannis and, and having a guy, Jabari Parker, who wasn't a great fit, but obviously was a great player. They had Middleton and all those guys two years ago, and this was a very average team. I know they pushed Boston to the limit, but... Ultimately, if especially when you take the Western Conference into account, you could argue in 17-18, um, they weren't one of the 15 best teams in the NBA, and they hired Budenholzer last year. And all of a sudden, I mean, just going from Jason Kidd to him, they become the best regular season team in basketball a season ago. This year, again, far from the most talent of any roster in the NBA. I would say probably, like, sixth or seventh in that respect, and they have the all-time highest margin or, or highest net rating, rather, in league history, and that's because of the system that Budenholzer built. What do you want around a superstar who's uniquely dominant getting to the basket and finishing around the basket? Shooting. And, and that's how he built the team. He got, in Brook Lopez, a guy who was considered somewhat over the hill had an incredible career in Brooklyn, and I think is the Nets' all-time leading scorer, and yet was undervalued because he was coming off a season with the Lakers where he didn't really fit into what they were doing, and he'd never been part of a team that had won anything meaningful. But this is why you have a scouting department, because they looked past the surface and said, hey, this is a guy who, despite not really having a reputation as being a shutdown defender, is one of the best rim protectors in all of basketball and is undervalued after a down year. And as someone who has consistently, despite 
being in a Neanderthalic system in Brooklyn where Lionel Hollins was telling he couldn't shoot outside the paint. One of the better shooters or had the potential to be one of the better shooting big men in all of basketball. And you get that combination, and that's the best thing you can possibly put around Giannis. A center who can hit threes on one end, when Giannis is on the bench, can go under the basket and be the focal point of an offense, and then on the other end, do a credible job protecting the rim. And Lopez has done more than that. He's, again, become one of the elite rim protectors in the NBA. Last year, they get another guy in George Hill that... They simply had to trade Matthew Delvadova, who wasn't really playing and was grossly overpaid, and a guy in John Henson, who they had essentially given up on, with good reason, for plus a late first-round pick, plus a late second-round pick, for Hill, who is 33 now, so not in his prime, and yet sort of the perfect point guard to pair with Antetokounmpo, because he's one of the better shooters in the league at the position, Smart ball mover, solid defender, and doesn't need the ball to be successful. He allows Giannis to be the nominal point guard when he's in. It's why he was such a clean fit in Cleveland next to LeBron James. Then they get another guy in Wesley Matthews, who is yet another undervalued vet. I mean, you remember when the Knicks got him a year ago, I was trashing him on this podcast. I said, look, I feel bad for the guy because he had the torn Achilles, but he's completely over the hill at this point. He's not someone who's going to really help you. And that's why the Knicks were willing to move on from him as quickly as possible. And it took three to four to five years, but he is essentially fully rebounded from that injury and he's become the guy who he was early in his career that made him so valuable in both Utah and Portland. And that's someone who's a genuine 3 and D player. And you hear a lot of guys get that moniker, but very few actually live up to it. And Matthews does. An above average shooter on one end and a guy who can defend the best perimeter player credibly enough that it allows Giannis to play free safety on the other. And that's a big deal. They they tack on another two more good shooters in Urson, Ilyasova, and Kyle Korver, both of whom were considered past their primes, who in a lot of systems just wouldn't fit at this point because neither is a very functional defender. Both, I mean, Korver more than Urson, can't really do much other than shoot. But when you have Giannis to cover up for all of that on both ends, they become really powerful weapons, and the gravity they bring to the table make it just impossible to guard Antetokounmpo when those three guys are on the floor together. And that's such a weapon, and it's why, especially in the regular season, look, I don't know what role those two play in the playoffs, particularly Corver. I think at 38, he might be too old to play significant minutes against the best opponents in the league, particularly if the Bucks make it to the finals. But as of now, they are such weapons, and they allow Milwaukee to just separate from teams and turn a lot of these games into blowouts early. You saw it against the Knicks. They buried the Knicks. They hit their first six threes. They went up 26-4 to in that game. And it's because of guys like Urson and Korver who know how to take advantage of younger players, who know how to manipulate defenses to maximize spacing around Giannis, who move and cut at just the right moment that forces an impossible decision on an NBA defense. Do you give up a Giannis dunk, or do you want Kyle Korver shooting a wide-open three, which he's going to make 60-70% to 70% of the time? It's impossible. And that's why they were brilliant additions from the Bucks' young GM, John Horst. Robin Lopez. He can do a Brook imitation. And the more minutes you get of a Brook Lopez type on the floor, the better Milwaukee is. One of their weaknesses last year is they just weren't as good when Lopez left the court. By getting Rolo, they've replicated a lot of that. And it's made them better and more dominant over the course of this regular season, despite 
losing Malcolm Brogdon. Finally, Eric Bledsoe, who's not a great fit on this team, but was an asset that Phoenix just wanted to get off of, and Milwaukee took advantage of it, traded him for essentially nothing, because Brandon Knight was basically out of the league within a year of going to the Suns. I think they had to give him a first-round pick, but that didn't end up being exceptionally valuable. So Bledsoe is an example of a talent play who's not a great fit, but someone who ultimately makes you better when you put him in the right system. All right, we'll take one final break. We'll come back and tell you how all of this impacts the Knicks. Welcome back to Locked On Knicks, where you're going to finish this one up by telling you how everything we learned about the Heat and the Bucks apply to the New York Knicks. So what ultimately goes into making an elite NBA team? Ideally, you have a bunch of superstars who decide they all want to play together. That's your best case scenario. That didn't happen for either Milwaukee or, weirdly enough, Miami this time around. And it gives a path for the Knicks to build around just one star, which is good because I don't think the Knicks currently have one on their roster. To compensate for that, you need an elite head coach and a front office that's just as good, just as progressive to back him up. And that means if you're the Knicks, the current group isn't going to do it. They're not the worst. They're better than what the Knicks have had in the past. But they are far from the best in the NBA. And that means if you're Jimmy Dolan, it's time to empty the bank one more time. This time for a guy who actually has been a general manager before. Whether that's Masai Ujiri, whether it's Sam Presti. Heck, I would take Sam Hinkie. And then you have to trust that guy to find you a coach. Maybe it's Mike Miller. Maybe it's someone a little more established. I mean, the Knicks had Mike Budenholzer in for an interview a few years ago. They had Steve Kerr in for an interview before that. They've been in on the right guy. For whatever reason, they haven't been able to land them. And that's probably due to the Knicks' reputation they've built up over the last 20 years. Which is why it's so crucial that they hire a general manager whose credentials you simply can't question. Someone who's already won an NBA title, or at the very least has come darn close to it. And you give that guy total power. They had been able to close on David Griffin a couple years back. I wouldn't be surprised if, assuming I'm remembering the timeline correctly, if Mike Budenholzer, someone similar to Mike Budenholzer, wasn't the next coach right now, and they were way, way ahead on the rebuild. But because of Dolan's ego, and because of guys like Steve Mills insisting on having a voice despite having no idea what they're doing. The Knicks haven't been able to get that guy. And as we've said again and again on this podcast, until they're willing to make that concession, I'm sorry, you're not going to luck into being an elite team. And, I mean, the Knicks are the kid who wants the reward without doing any of the work. And that ultimately has to change. But once you get those guys in place, how would they actually go about rebuilding and remodeling this team into one that can contend for a championship. Because as much as people say the Knicks are moving in the right direction in terms of their young players and doing the right things, they're on a trajectory right now with the guys they currently have to be a first-round, maybe a second-round playoff team. And that's not the worst thing in the world. That's what Miami was for a long time. That's what Milwaukee was for a long time. But if you want to go the Miami path and you want to sort of build the star infrastructure first and then get the star versus the Bucks path of 
lucking into the star and then building around him, which they did the last two years, you need to have something to sell. And that goes back to the front office, to the coach. But even more than that, I think in players' eyes, it goes back to the roster around them. And again, this is all one big circle because if you don't have the front office to sign those players, then they're not going to get there. But it's worth looking at the current Knicks roster and saying, which guys could be on a team that a superstar would want to go to? I'll start off with Marcus Morris, who's been the Knicks' best player this season, and in my mind is doing a pretty good impersonation of Chris Middleton. And I, I genuinely wonder if you just flipped Morris and Middleton, would Milwaukee be significantly worse? Would the Knicks be significantly better? I don't think so. I mean, there, there are obvious reasons why Middleton is more valuable. He's done this over a longer period of time. He's a better defender than Morris is. He doesn't have the brain farts that Morris has on that end. None of the issues um, in terms of ball dominance, even though Morris has gotten better on that front, and he's two years younger. But my, my point being that Morris could be, for the right superstar, a pretty decent third or fourth option. I mean, and, and here's the thing. like He's probably, like, this is going to end up being the best year of his career. I don't see him pulling a Steve Nash and getting better and better into his 30s, but I think a lot of what he does is pretty sustainable. Good footwork. Great shooting touch, physical strength. He he has the tools to age really gracefully, and that that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm I don't mind if the Knicks don't trade him this year. That was a loaded double negative, um, but I, I think they should hold on to him because he could be a fit on a good team. If the Knicks get to that point in the next couple of years, I could still see Morris being a solid contributor well into his thirties. R.J. Barrett, who is the Knicks' most prized asset at the moment. And I know a lot of people listening to this podcast, and when I say the Knicks don't have a star yet and still need to get that guy, they say, well, give RJ some time. He'll be that dude. I don't think he's going to be. I made that clear. Look, I, I, I've eaten a lot of crow on RJ. I love how he's played this rookie season. He's such a smart player, and I think he's going to have a 15-year NBA career if that's what he wants. I don't see him ever being the best player on a championship team. I don't see him ever being the second best player on a championship team. I think third is probably his ceiling, but that still makes him an incredibly valuable piece. And even if his shot never totally comes around with the right coach on the right team, he could be a Chris Middleton or a Bam Adebayo-esque second banana. I mean, heck, I, I think his ceiling is higher than Middleton and very similar to Adebayo's, even if he's never going to be quite the same impact defender, he certainly has strengths that Bam is never going to replicate on offense. So he's a guy that a lot of superstars I think we want to play with, both in terms of his pedigree and the fact that I think we're going to see once he's on a good team and once he's surrounded by a good supporting cast, it only further highlights the strengths of his game. And finally, the kid is just a badass. He's not going to be phased in big moments. He's not going to be phased in the playoffs. And you always hear Bill Simmons use the phrase in regard to LeBron James, uh, who can I go to war with? I, I think that's what LeBron, that's what Kobe, that's what Dirk, that's what Duncan, that's what KG, that's what all these stars over the last 10 to 15 years and really throughout the history of the league are looking for. Who can I go into battle with and who's not going to blink? Who's not going to have a George Hill moment where he misses a free throw that could potentially win me a finals game or have the brain fart of a J.R. Smith where he doesn't even shoot on the rebound? And I think RJ is that guy. And, and that dude has a lot of value because every star in the league wants to play with someone like that. And I think Barrett, when you take into account his unselfishness, 
and what he's like as a person and a teammate and his sheer competitiveness is sort of the perfect fit from both a temperament and an on-court perspective for another star. So he's someone you want to keep. Mitchell Robinson is a little bit more interesting because you look at how Milwaukee and Miami have structured or laid out the center position, and they've emphasized shooting at those spots because that's how you make Giannis into a lesser degree Jimmy Butler totally unguardable. If you have four shooters around those guys, you're not going to be able to stop them because they're going to win against any single defender in the league. Giannis more so than Butler, but really it's true for both of them. And that's where Mitch is is a little bit of an issue, to have a guy who I know he's working on his three-pointer. I don't think he's ever going to be a plus three-point shooter. I think his bread and butter is always going to be getting to the basket. And that requires a different type of superstar, someone more like a Steph Curry or James Harden, whose ability to stretch the floor allows someone like Mitch to be at their absolute best. And you look at Clint Capella playing that role in Houston, and you look at a variety of guys in Golden State, whether it was Kevon Looney or Jordan Bell or 20 other names I could throw in there who who have done that over the years and taken advantage of Curry drawing a double team and passing it to Draymond Green and Green working in a four-on-three and just tossing up a lob. That being said... If you have a Butler or a Giannis-type guy, because the Knicks, if they're going to get that caliber of player, they cannot be picky, whether it's in free agency or whether they lock into that guy in next year's draft or in a draft two years down the road. They have to take what they can get. And there are ways with the right coach and the right players around him, Mitch continuing to expand his game, that you can make that work, even if your best player isn't a great shooter. And guys like Giannis and Butler... I mean, Butler in particular, Giannis to a lesser degree, he's certainly turning the corner in this capacity, are good enough shooters. And if you have a star who's good enough to work on that part of their game, that they can make that work. And you can emphasize or de-emphasize Mitch's role based on that. But I think he's such an impact defender and has the potential to be so efficient at a relatively high volume offensively that you have to keep that guy on your team, even if he's not the best possible archetype of a player to put around a star. Damian Dotson, exactly who you want. I mean, if you switched him and Sterling Brown in Milwaukee right now, I don't think the Bucks would notice a big drop-off. I mean, I think they would take that trade. You could say the same thing about him and Dante DiVincenzo. I just think he plays defense and he shoots the three ball at a high level. Would you want him to be a little bit better at both? Sure. But that's the difference between him being a Danny Green and being kind of an integral third or fourth option on a really, really good team versus being a bench guy who can come in and especially in the regular season make a difference and is good enough defensively that you can throw him out there in the playoffs and he will at the very least ensure that your star doesn't have a hard double team coming from that spot. And that's a very big deal. That makes all the difference in the world. Reggie Bullock, same story, career 39% three-point shooter, solid defensively, and he fits that mold to a T. So those guys both fit in that sense. Alonzo Trier, he can be your Kendrick Nunn. If you want to be generous in terms of his projection, and I don't think this is fair because Bledsoe's so much better defensively, but you can even you can even throw him in the Eric Bledsoe capacity. I, I think Nunn is, is the better comp, though. Someone who's a scorer first, 
who on paper you say, all right, if I have a Giannis or especially if I have a Jimmy Butler, I don't want another shoot-first guy who's just a less efficient version of my star on the floor with him. But Miami makes it work with none because their system emphasizes so much movement that it disallows the worst tendencies of none and on the Knicks, Trier's game. In that it keeps them moving, it keeps them running, and they can't just sit on the ball, dribble the air out of it, and then chuck up a shot. And I think for someone with Trier's talent, he should be playing this season on the Knicks. And the reason he's not is because they don't have a coach. I mean, we'll see more under Miller. But particularly in Fisdale, that was creative enough to force him to get to the best parts of his game. And instead, when he didn't do that on his own, just benched him because Fisdale didn't have the ingenuity to get him to the right spots and get him to do the right things. But Trier has a lot of talent. And if you have a good enough coach, I think you could maximize it. Frank is another interesting case because you want shooting at the point guard spot. But similar to Mitch, he brings so much on, on defense and so much in terms of intangibles. I think that's still a dude you want on your team, even if it's not the cleanest fit next to a star. But I'm a little bit more open to eventually moving on from him just because if he doesn't get better as a shooter, I, I think he's going to ultimately be unplayable in big games. And that's when you really need a guy who you can rely on. On the flip side of that, he's so good defensively that I think the impact he makes will be more significant in the playoffs when you really have to work on one-on-one matchups and games come down to the wire and iso ball becomes such an essential skill. If you have a shutdown, if you have a shutdown guy at the most talent-loaded position in the league, that's a real weapon, and that's why people keep saying, why I keep saying. No matter what the Knicks think of him, no matter what the Knicks do with him, Frank, assuming he gets lucky enough to find the right team, is going to have a very, very long NBA career, even if he doesn't get any better than what he is right now. Taj Gibson, you can take or leave. He's a smart bench big. I don't think he's a good enough shooter to really be a fit on a great team. Iggy Brasdakis. Uh, This is a whole lot of projection, but down the road, I can see him being a DiVincenzo type, who's not the most efficient scorer, but it just is kind of a Swiss army knife for a team that's loaded everywhere else and can provide a lot of energy. Like, again, I think he's another guy who, if he was in the rotation for Milwaukee right now, at least in the regular season, not someone who would stand out in a glaringly negative way and would do good things for them. Uh, That leaves the guys who aren't a fit. Julius Randle, Dennis Smith Jr., Bobby Portis, Alfred Payton. Randle's obvious. I mean, just needs shooting around him. And I think the flaw with Randle and the reason... I didn't understand why the Knicks wanted him and why I think it's such a negative reflection on the front office that they did is he's a guy who needs to be catered to in the same way as a superstar with spacing around him and the ball in his hands, but isn't good enough to warrant those types of luxuries. And and that's ultimately the flaw with Julius Randle is he needs a team built around him, but he's not good enough to deserve a team built around him. And because of that, I mean, I just don't want the guy on my team as good of a guy as he is and as much talent as he has. I'd rather not have him. Dennis Smith Jr., just not very good. I think that's kind of obvious. Bobby Portis um, has been playing better. Miller has gotten the best out of him, and you give Miller all the credit in the world for that. Uh, Just not the type of player you want on a great team. Alfred Payton, I think similar issues to Frank, even though he's more developed offensively, obviously, and is probably a better point guard for the Knicks right now. It's just so clear that he's not going to ever be a great shooter, and he doesn't bring enough that I think it's worth having him on your team. Maybe as a third-string point guard. Kevin Knox, very interesting. I, I think it's it's sort of TBD. 
because I can't tell what he is yet. Is he just a floor spacer? Is he someone who's eventually going to put it all together and average 20 points per game? And I just don't know. If he doesn't improve in the intangible parts of the game and his IQ and his defense, then you just can't put him on a good team. But I'm not ready to give up on him yet either. So for right now, he sort of falls in the middle category of someone who could be on the Knicks long term, but I don't necessarily know if he deserves to or should be when they're at their best. At the end of the day, for any of this to be relevant, as I noted earlier, the Knicks need to get their GM and coach, and they need to get their star player. Because without that guy, none of the side pieces really matter. It's the same thing I said about Miami earlier in the podcast. A star can be defined as someone who brings out the best in everyone else on the team and gives them the leeway to be the best version of themselves and not worry about having to be anything else. How can the Knicks get a star? Again, it's about building up the front office and getting the right coach. And at that point, if you're doing all the right things, you'll see what happened with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving in Brooklyn, where they saw an infrastructure that was ready for them to come in and win to. And frankly, at the end of the day, the Knicks didn't deserve either of them because despite having years and years to build it up, the Knicks didn't put together an ecosystem in which those guys could thrive. Durant is a basketball genius. Kyrie, for all that's wrong with him, and you can question if he's even an asset if for the Nets right now, they've been better without him. He's a basketball genius. And they saw what anyone can see. And it was that the Nets were more ready to win than the Knicks because they had taken these steps and they built something similar to what we saw in Milwaukee and Miami. The Knicks have to go down that path. Will they? That's a story for another day. That's it for this edition of Locked on Knicks. I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'll be back later in the week. Happy holidays.